Juan Manuel Fangio is, without a doubt, one of the finest Formula One drivers ever to compete in the sport. An impressive feat for a man of humble Argentine beginnings. We know him best for his five world driver championships achieved with four different teams, setting records that were considered unbeatable for decades. His influence on the sport was profound, but he was more than just a racing driver. In fact, it was Fangio himself who managed to drastically change the tides of the Cuban Revolution that saw Fidel Castro take control of the island nation. And all it took was getting kidnapped. Motorsport isn't just about fast cars and daredevil drivers. It's a place where shadows race alongside the cars and scandals burn hotter than exhaust pipes. Welcome to Deadly Passion's Terrible Joys, a history podcast dedicated to diving into the darkest corners of the racing world to uncover secrets, deception, and intrigue. To really understand how Fangio's 1958 kidnapping impacted the world, we have to go back to the beginning, to June 24, 1911, when Juan Manuel Fangio was born to a modest family of stonemasons and farmers in the humble town of Balcarce, Argentina. As a child, Fangio suffered from a variety of illnesses, but he found peace tinkering with broken household appliances and later with the motors of the local horseless carriages that had slowly begun to make their way to Argentina. Young Fangio enjoyed the schooling he received, but in Balcarce, formal schooling only lasted until a child was about 12 years old. To continue pursuing an education, Fangio would have had to move 150 miles away to Buenos Aires, where schooling came with a high price tag. Juan was one of the Fangio family's six children. Between their lack of finances and his own frail health, Juan's mother, Erminia, opted to keep him close and under her care. Instead of schooling, Juan became an apprentice blacksmith, but his true love quickly revealed itself to be the automobile. By age 12, he had given up blacksmithing to instead join the men in the garage who worked on the handful of local cars in Balcarce. By age 15, he had become one of the town's most respected mechanics and was soon being invited by his customers to serve as their riding mechanic during races. I loved the idea of motor racing, Fangio said, as written in Gerald Donaldson's biography of the man. I was attracted by the spirit of adventure that is an inseparable part of it. I already felt I was a racer. It put me on the right track. That adventurousness also translated into a passion for football, where he earned the nickname El Chueco, or bandy-legged one, for his ability to bend his left leg around the ball to shoot goals. He briefly ran away with friends before his father brought him back home, something that turned out to be a blessing in disguise, as young Fangio soon came down with a nasty case of pneumonia that kept him bedridden for two months while his mother wept by his side. He was slow to recover from the illness, and it was only when he turned 21 that he was finally deemed fit enough to engage in mandatory military service. There, his skills behind the wheel earned him a spot as an official driver, and the mandatory physical activity was good for Fangio's health. He was discharged just before his 22nd birthday when he returned home to pursue a career as a footballer. It was actually his teammates who suggested that he instead focus on his mechanical skills. And soon, several members of the team had set up a repair shop for local vehicles. Over the course of six years, the shop had begun to thrive. It wasn't until late 1936 that Fangio decided he could perhaps gain publicity for his garage by competing in a race. Using the pseudonym of Rivadavia to keep his activities a secret from his family, Fangio entered a 1929 Ford Model A and a 25-lap race around Balcarce's Benito Juarez road course. It wasn't the most prosperous outing. On the first lap, Fangio watched a car overtake him, then lose control. The driver was killed. 
Later, after making his way up to third place, Fangio's Model A suffered an engine failure, and he was out of the race with just two laps to go. His next outing was also a little bit of a disaster. In December, Fangio worked through the night to get a 1930 Ford Model A up to racing spec, only to arrive at the track to find the race already underway. He tried to sneak onto the field, but he was disqualified for his behavior. And then he had to suffer the indignity of explaining his goings-on to his parents. After one more disastrous race that left a gaping hole in his finances, Fangio decided to hang up his helmet and focus instead on running his successful repair shop. It was over a year before Fangio competed again, and his return came with a renewed vigor. Over in Europe, many long-distance road races had been banned over complex safety concerns, but in Argentina, they were still a primary venue for racing. The roads were dangerous and unmaintained, but it was also far cheaper to host a race on an open road than to build and maintain a closed circuit. In his first event, the Gran Premio Argentino de Carreteras, Fangio and his co-driver Luis Finocchietti labored through the difficult conditions to finish fifth, one of the few cars that actually made it to the end of the 12-stage 4,950-mile event. It had been a challenge, but Fangio was eager for more. Still, as he continued to grow his racing career in the late 1930s, he was never quite an out-and-out star. While he was finishing races, his results had left much to be desired, and Fangio may have quit for good had his friends, family, and customers in Balcarce not fallen for the local hero who was competing against iconic drivers on some of the most difficult courses in motorsport history. A local counselor even organized a collection campaign to buy Fangio a car to enter in another running of the Gran Premio Argentino de Carreteras. Fangio struggled through the race, then immediately launched into another event called the Gran Premio Extraordinario, which was designed to take advantage of the fact that all of those cars had just competed a long-distance race and could go head off to do another. Despite persistent car trouble in both events, Fangio had achieved results he could be proud of and learned just how important it was to keep pushing through adversity. And then finally, Fangio was rewarded with his first race win, which came at the grueling 1940 Gran Premio del Norte, a 6,250-mile rally-style race that ran from Buenos Aires through the Andes to Peru, then traversed right back down to Buenos Aires. It was a 15-day event that forced drivers to endure everything from dry deserts to snow-capped mountain peaks to thick, humid jungles. It took a local raffle for Fangio to afford a vehicle for the race, but he and co-driver Hector Thierry were able to transform a stock Chevrolet into a race-ready machine with, once again, financial help from friends and locals. The Gran Premio del Norte was the kind of race that not only challenged cars, it also forced its drivers to compete under increasingly dangerous circumstances, and for the Fangio-Tieri duo, the race almost ended before it truly began. Early in the race, a rock damaged the car's drive shaft. While they were able to fix the damage, more setbacks followed. In Bolivia, a local crashed into Fangio's car and bent the axle, forcing the men in the cockpit to pull an all-nighter to make repairs. And then, just before the desert section of the event, the fan blade got loose and punctured the radiator, forcing the two men to drive 150 miles through the desert with no water. The headlights fell off as the Chevrolet powered through the night, and it was Thierry's tie that secured the all-important lamps in place. Up in the mountains, it was so cold that Fangio could only drive if Thierry held him, the two men sharing warmth. But after those 15 grueling days, Fangio had won. 
the hardship had proven to be worthwhile when he took home tens of thousands of pesos and countless trophies at the end of the event, and he had further secured his ambition to be a racing driver. However, as far as the international racing community went, Juan Manuel Fangio was still a relative unknown. His local successes had transformed him into a legend in Argentina, but his name would have meant very little to anyone over in Europe. And with the onset of World War II putting his racing career on hold, it seemed as if Fangio could be forced to give up his dream just after he had been crowned champion of his local series. The boy from Baikarse had gotten a taste for speed, though, and he went the duration of the war reminiscing about his fantastic successes and his hopes for the future. When fuel rationing ended and the war came to a close, Juan Manuel Fangio, now 36 years old, picked up racing again in 1946, then headed to the big, long-distance events that kicked off 1947. And then came La Temporada. Thanks to its location, South America became a coveted locale for small racing championships during Europe's traditional off-season. And in 1948, the Automobile Club Argentino had organized its second running of La Temporada, which essentially served as a non-championship race for Grand Prix cars. Foreign drivers were attracted by handsome paychecks, and as part of Juan Perón's goal to make Argentina an impressive name in all sports, two Grand Prix cars were on offer for the most eligible Argentine racers in what would become their first opportunity to compete against big names like Achille Varzi, Jean-Pierre Wimille, Luigi Villaresi, and more. After a comprehensive round of interviews, Fangio was selected to compete in one of the Grand Prix cars, a Maserati. Aside from his inherent skill behind the wheel, Fangio impressed the interviewers by being one of the only men who didn't ask the ACA how much they'd pay him for showing up. Instead, he asked them how much he could pay them. While Fangio's performance in La Temporada did leave a little to be desired, he was a quick learner and had impressed many of the Grand Prix drivers who had traveled to compete. Men like Wamil and Varzi took care to explain to Juan the nuance of unfamiliar Grand Prix cars and taking this promising star under their wing. And they weren't the only ones who were impressed. After La Temporada, the ACA organized an international tour for Fangio and his compatriot Oscar Galvez. The goal was to send these drivers out to experience European Grand Prix and big American races like the Indianapolis 500. That would help them better understand what Argentina would need to do to create competitive stars in the future. Once abroad, Fangio rekindled his friendships with the greatest drivers of the day and began to enter his first international races. Sadly, upon his return to Argentina, Fangio was involved in a racing accident that resulted in the death of his co-driver, Daniel Arrutia. The two men were good friends, and Arrutia's death, along with the deaths of three spectators and two other drivers in that event, shocked Fangio to his core. For a brief time, again, he considered giving up racing altogether, unable to reconcile the immense danger of a sport with his desire to compete. But as time passed and more opportunities arose, Fangio recovered. In December 1948, he had his big break. The Perón government bought Fangio a Maserati and sent him to Europe to kick off his racing career. He dominated his first event in San Remo, then went on to win a further four of the six Grand Prix he entered in 1949. Despite the fact that, at this point in his late 30s, Fangio was older than much of his competition, he became one of the most sought-after talents. He was ultimately rewarded for his efforts by Alfa Romeo, who signed him as a works driver for the first ever Formula One World Championship in 1950. From here, Fangio's story is likely familiar to many race fans. In 1950, three victories in six races was good enough for the Argentine driver to take second in the championship, behind Nino Farina. 
The following year, Fangio remained with Alfa Romeo to secure his very first world title thanks to three wins and two second-place finishes. But as Formula One plowed into its third year of competition, it had become clear that the sport was struggling. The effects of World War II still saw automakers struggle to find the funds to develop their F1 cars. So the sport was run under Formula Two specifications for the few years to allow more cars to enter. Alfa Romeo didn't have a Formula Two car. So without a team, Fangio popped behind the wheel of several different cars for non-championship races. And it was during this time that he suffered one of his worst accidents. Trying to make ends meet, Fangio had agreed to race a Maserati in Monza the day after he drove a BRM in Dundrod, Ireland. After driving through the night, a fatigued Fangio arrived at the track just before the start to take his place at the rear of the grid. And on the second lap, fatigue overtook him. He lost control of his car, crashed onto a grass bank, and was thrown out of the cockpit before the car smashed into the trees lining the Italian circuit. A broken neck saw him sit out the remainder of the year, vowing never again to push himself to that extent. He wouldn't need to. In 1953, Fangio was signed to Maserati, after which point he finished second. The following year, he signed to Mercedes-Benz, but because the German automaker's car wasn't ready until the third race of the season, Fangio kicked off the year with Maserati, winning both of the events he contested with the Italian mark. With Mercedes, Fangio won four of the final six events to take his second world championship. Then came the tragedy of 1955. While the season started out well for Fangio with a win in his home country, Mercedes had announced halfway through the season that it would be pulling out of motorsport after its cars were involved in a deadly Le Mans crash that killed 83 spectators. Fangio completed the abbreviated racing season with three wins and one second place, taking yet another title with a manufacturer who was set to depart the sport. With few options for 1956, Fangio signed with Enzo Ferrari's Scuderia, despite the misgivings he had about the team. At the time, Ferrari had inherited a slate of cars from Lancia's defunct racing program, and it was these tuned machines that the drivers were expected to race for 1956. But they came with problems. Fangio requested a personal mechanic to ensure his cars were adequately prepared to race, after which point his performance did improve. But the real star of the year was Peter Collins, his teammate. In the season finale in Monza, Fangio's car broke and his other teammates refused to hand over their machines, at least until Peter Collins offered his teammate his Ferrari with just 15 laps to go in the race. Had Collins remained behind the wheel, he would have taken the championship but he didn't want to. Reflecting later, he said, all I could think of was that if I won the race in the championship, I would be an instant celebrity. I would have a position to live up to. People would make demands of me. Driving wouldn't be fun anymore, so I handed the car to Fangio. I'm only 25 years old and have plenty of time to win a championship on my own. Sadly, Collins was killed within two years of allowing Fangio to take his fourth title. At the conclusion of the year, Fangio parted ways with the Ferrari team, concluding their uneasy partnership. Instead, he turned to Maserati, where four wins netted him his fifth and final world championship. Until 2003, he was the only driver to have ever accomplished that feat, which was all the more impressive considering the notorious unreliability of the cars of that era. Somehow, Fangio was able to do what his competition couldn't. After years of nursing cars through the perils of massive off-road races, he knew how to coax the machine to the end of a seemingly simpler and much shorter Grand Prix. But it was something of an uneasy victory. 
At the end of the 1957 season, Maserati was so close to insolvency that it could prepare only a single Grand Prix car, which it would offer to private entrants. He accepted that Maserati for the 1958 season opener in Argentina, but primarily took a wait-and-see attitude toward the upcoming year. All of that finally brings us to 1958. At this point, the beloved Fangio had become an icon in the motorsport world, but he was getting tired. At 46 years old, he was ready to hang up his helmet and bid farewell to regular competition before he suffered the indignity of deeply atrophying performance. He wanted to be remembered for his successes, not for a drastic drop in results that could mar his legacy. Beyond all of that, his parents were still alive, but they were approaching the final years of their life. Fangio started to feel immense guilt over the fact that he had essentially abandoned his family when he jetted off to Europe, barely even sending postcards because he knew it would make him unbearably homesick. But as his parents aged, he realized he wanted to cherish a few more years with his loved ones. But coming off of his successful 1957 campaign, Fangio was easily the biggest name in the motorsport world and his presence at the track was in high demand. His name alone could make all the difference regarding the size of the trackside crowd, and so it was natural that he would be invited to compete in the second running of the Cuban Grand Prix. The Cuban Grand Prix, also known as the Havana Grand Prix, first took place in 1957. The 3.23 mile track stretched across El Melecon, a gorgeous palm tree land esplanade that crept across the seafront, and it was the personal idea of one Fulgencio Batista. While Batista had been a democratically elected into the role of president between 1940 and 1944, his time in office was marred by corruption. Batista openly conducted business with mobsters, and when it came time to vote for a new leader, he was quickly ousted from power. Batista seized. He organized a coup against President Carlos Briosocaras and secured power again in 1952. From that point on, Batista regarded Cuba less as a country for its many civilians and more as his own personal playground, where he could make the rules for everyone else but choose not to follow them himself. At the time, Cuba was receiving all kinds of assistance from the United States government in the form of financial, military, and logistical support, and Batista used this to create something of a far-right military dictatorship. After seizing power in 1952, Batista immediately suspended the groundbreaking 1940 constitution that he had implemented from his previous time in office. The constitution was considered incredibly progressive and afforded liberties like the right to strike, a guaranteed minimum wage, public education standards, and it also affirmed the notion of collective rights. By overturning his previously forward-thinking platform, Batista signaled that he was prepared to implement a regime unlike anything anyone had seen before. And it only got worse. He sided with the wealthy landowners, many of whom were foreigners growing sugar for American consumption, and he began doing business with the American Mafia. In turn, the Mafia moved into Cuba, transforming Havana into a formidable den of sin, with widespread prostitution, gambling, and drug abuse that enticed wealthy Americans to bask in the seemingly untroubled seaside resort. Elsewhere in Cuba, however, things were grim. As Cuba's elite grew wealthier, the poor grew poorer. Student demonstrations and riots kicked up around the country, often led by a revolutionary named Fidel Castro. This dissent saw Batista censor the media to prevent that information from leaking. 
To punish the rioters, he used the secret police of his bureau for the repression of communist activities to beat down protesters, torturing them and publicly executing them as he saw fit. It was into this environment that the idea for the Cuban Grand Prix germinated. As resistance to his rule grew, Batista invested in a high-profile international race to keep Cuba's name in the news in a more positive way. Drivers from all disciplines were invited to take part, enticed by both the generous expenses afforded by the Batista regime as well as the generous prize purses and appearance fees. Just by turning up at the inaugural Havana Grand Prix in 1957, Fangio earned $7,000, which amounts to about $50,000 today. His victory in the event being the wheel of a Maserati 300S netted him even more. After 1957's great success, Batista was prepared to double down on the race's propaganda efforts for 1958. It was clear that Fangio's retirement was on the horizon, and fans were desperate to catch a glimpse of the iconic driver behind the wheel before he hung up his helmet. However, in the year that had passed since the first Havana Grand Prix, Cuba had completely changed. Once the city was hospitable to the locals, now political unrest was so rampant that the government struggled to hide the frustrations behind the country's star-studded Americanized veneer. Big-name drivers like Fangio were given bodyguards and put up in the swanky Hotel Lincoln. The hope was that this would provide an adequate safety net to help the Monday race go off without a hitch. Until Sunday night, things had gone off without a hitch, and Fangio had set pole position for the race behind the wheel of a Maserati 450S that had been loaned to him by American entrant Temple Buell. But on Sunday, February 23rd, the night before the race, Cuba's illusion of safety was shattered. The bar in the lobby of the Hotel Lincoln was filled with drivers and other race personnel, and by 9 p.m., they naturally drawn a crowd of fascinated locals who wanted to catch a glimpse of their idols, and perhaps even get an autograph. As Fangio stepped forward to sign something for a young gentleman in the crowd, however, he was shocked to find not a napkin or a piece of paper in front of him, but a Colt 45 pistol. At first, Fangio assumed he was the victim of a bad joke and laughed with the shaky-looking gentleman brandishing the gun. That is, until he was politely informed that he was being kidnapped and that this shaking man's armed friend stood by the door. Would he please come with them? At that moment, Fangio weighed his options. He, along with every other driver, had been afforded armed bodyguards by the Batista government, but it was clear that the man poking him in the ribs with a pistol was something different as was the friend who had leveled his own gun at the crowd of astonished onlookers. More than anything, Fangio was desperate that the situation not evolve into an all-out gun battle that could have killed innocent members of the crowd. I said I would go with him, Fangio said, as reported by Gerald Donaldson in his biography of the driver. As we walked out, I was waiting for gunfire, ready to throw myself on the ground as in action films. But nobody fired. At the door, the second kidnapper shouted out, Nobody leaves this hotel for five minutes. Outside, there were four more men with machine guns pointing at the door. One of the kidnappers, Angel Paya Garcia, recalled a similar tale, as reported in Motorsport magazine. Fangio thought we were joking until he saw the gun, and when we warned the others that Fangio would take the consequences if anyone tried anything, the racing driver said, let's go. Would we have used our pistols? I don't think so. We weren't murderers. Fangio remained very calm. Thankfully, no shots were fired, and Fangio was tucked into the back seat of a black Plymouth, one of three vehicles waiting for him. He was put next to a man who held a machine gun pointed right at him. 
Fangio asked this man to put the gun down, as he wouldn't offer any resistance to their efforts. In turn, he was asked to wear a hat and sunglasses, then crouch on the floor of the car, out of sight from any onlookers. Fangio recounted this part of kidnapping in detail in the International Grand Prix Book of Motor Racing. It was explained to me that the movement of the 26th of July was a Castro political organization. You are to be our guest, said the man beside me, and you'll be treated with courtesy. We are doing this because you are, at the moment, the most famous visitor to the island. Tomorrow, you will not be at the start of the Grand Prix. Afterwards, you will be liberated. Our intention is to focus world attention in this way on our political movement, which Batista and his regime are trying to suppress. Claro? The three cars cruised through the streets of Havana before ending up in a villa in a quiet suburb. There, Fangio found the house occupied by a woman and her young son. As he tells it, the woman asked me to give an autograph to her son. I put down the date and the child's name and signed it. From there, Fangio was taken to another house and then a third. It was in that third house where he was kept overnight with a group of 10 revolutionaries led by Oscar Lucero. There, they explained to Fangio their goals over a dinner of steak, eggs, and potatoes. They were part of Castro's 26th of July movement, named after a 1953 attempt to overthrow the Batista regime, and they had attempted to kidnap Fangio the year previously, but they'd failed. With their success in 1958, they hoped they'd be able to draw attention to Batista's failed state by using Fangio as their pawn. No longer would Batista be able to control the media narrative coming out of the country, not when motorsport's biggest star had been successfully kidnapped by revolutionaries. As he heard them speak, Fangio grew sympathetic to their cause. The folks who'd kidnapped him, many of them young students, had been living under a reign of terror. They'd watched their friends and relatives gunned down in the street by the military. Some of their politically active loved ones had disappeared, never to be seen again. They told Fangio of the basic human rights that had been denied them, of the way Batista spent and spent on luxuries of his own dictatorship without sharing any of that wealth with anyone else. And despite the gruesome nature of their tales, Fangio rested easier knowing that his kidnappers didn't mean him any harm. Instead, they set him up with a comfortable bed and allowed him to call his family to let them know that he was safe no matter what they read in the papers. And the papers came flowing in. As soon as Fangio had been kidnapped, members of the 26th of July movement went straight to the news agencies to get the word out. Juan Manuel Fangio had been kidnapped, and Batista's government hadn't been able to stop it. The driver himself skimmed those headlines at the local newspapers at breakfast, where he learned that his fellow drivers had been placed under greater surveillance, while a massive Batista-endorsed manhunt attempted to track Fangio down. Suddenly, the narrative around the race had shifted from state-sponsored propaganda to all-out exposés on the dangers of the country under Fulgencio Batista's rule. Things only got worse for Batista. He demanded the start of the 1958 Cuban Grand Prix be delayed for two hours, confident, perhaps, that the police might just find the event star driver who had helped attract a crowd of over 250,000 people. At least that's the attendance figure cited by Nigel Roebuck in Motorsport Magazine. Other people put the figure around 150,000. The delays couldn't go on forever, though, and when it became clear that Fangio was not going to make the grid, his Maserati was given to driver Maurice Trintignant, and the race was ready to run. Fangio's captors hoped that the government would have to cancel the race without its star, they did kindly provide him with a television set to watch the start of the event, even though he found it uncomfortable to spectate a race he likely could have won. 
More members of the 26th of July movement stopped by to apologize for the fuss as Sterling Moss took lead of the race. But Fangio's kidnapping was not the only dark mark on the 1958 Cuban Grand Prix. When the green flag flew, one car on the track had started to leak oil around the circuit. By the fifth of 90 laps, the offending car had slicked down key corners of the street track, which was flanked by thousands of spectators. One of the race's entrants was an inexperienced Cuban racer, 26-year-old Armando Garcia Cifuentes. Behind the wheel of a yellow and black Ferrari, he was hoping to emulate Fangio by becoming a local boy so talented that he could impress a field stacked with some of the world's best drivers. It was his inexperience that caught up to him. At a corner near the American embassy, Cifuentes lost control in a slick patch of oil and barreled into the crowd. Seven spectators were killed, and almost 40 more were injured by the scything machine. A concerning lack of crowd control also meant that, in the aftermath, audience members desperate to flee from the scene actually ran right out onto the hot racetrack, where the cars were still racing at full speed. After just six laps, the race was red flagged, but only because drivers Phil Hill and Bob said had gotten out of their cars and demanded that happen. The 1958 Cuban Grand Prix was over. As the race came to a sudden and violent end, Fangio's captors knew they had another bigger problem on their hands. How to safely release Fangio. They didn't intend to hold him hostage until he was discovered by Batista's men, which would likely result in a bloody shootout. They also didn't want to do something as simple as drop Fangio off at his hotel, fearing that he'd be killed so that Batista could claim the revolutionary 26th of July movement truly was the group of bloodthirsty bandits he'd portrayed them to be in the media. Fangio himself had the answer. They should simply drop him off at the apartment of Raul Lynch, who was serving as Argentina's ambassador to Cuba. The captors did exactly as he asked, and for good measure, they even apologized for inconveniencing him as they dropped him off. Fangio had been in captivity for 29 hours. Fulgencio Batista's government began to crumble after Fangio's release. His failure to find the reigning world champion despite a massive manhunt revealed underlying weaknesses in what had once seemed to be an unstoppable military dictatorship. Within nine months, Batista had fled to another country where he attempted to hide out under exile as the U.S. implemented arms bans on Cuba and his supremacy as leader began to fall into question. Even though the 26th of July movement failed to get the Havana Grand Prix canceled, they ultimately found greater success from the tragedy that the race ultimately became. Cifuentes' crash and the subsequent failure to control the crowd continued to reveal that the Batista government was not quite in control the way it wanted itself to seem. In fact, further shockwaves reverberated in the aftermath of the event, when the government attempted to blame Cifuentes for the crash, when Cifuentes was still fighting for his life in the hospital. The government refused to apportion any blame to race organizers for an unacceptable lack of crowd control, perhaps because the event happened to be run by Batista's brother-in-law. It all further served to highlight the cruelty of the dictatorship. Castro's guerrilla tactics proved effective in fighting Batista's army, and the Batista government was ultimately overthrown on the first day of 1959 by a group of rebels acting under the command of Che Guevara. Soon after, Castro's army rolled victoriously through the streets of Cuba. 
This new government attempted to hold an additional Grand Prix in 1960 called the Grand Premio Libertad or the Freedom Grand Prix, once again to entice tourists to view Cuba as a fabulous vacation destination. Sadly, the action-packed week of racing ended on a negative when Castro issued an ultimatum. Whatever remained in Cuba after a certain date that happened to be very soon after the race would be claimed as his. That meant he'd be able to seize all of the race team's vehicles and equipment, and with only one ferry making a handful of trips between Havana and West Palm Beach, Florida, not everyone got their cars out of the country. Grand Prix racing never came back to Cuba. Fangio, for his own part, looked back on the event with his usual good grace. Speaking to the media, he confessed that he bore his captors no ill will and actually understood why they had done what they'd done. Shortly after his release, he was flown to New York City, where he was paid $1,000 to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show. During the interview, he laughed and said, I had won the world championship five times, but what made me big in the United States was being kidnapped in Cuba, which I thought was a bit strange. Five months later, Fangio retired after completing the 1958 French Grand Prix. Although he was running fifth at the end of the race, it was slow enough that leader Mike Hawthorne had begun to creep behind Fangio on the last lap. In deference to the legend, Hawthorne slowed, refusing to pass Fangio in order to allow him to finish on the lead lap of the race. When Peter Collins crashed before the end of the event, Fangio was even able to move up one more position. When he climbed from his car at the end of the race, which had also taken the life of Ferrari driver Luigi Musso, Fangio told his mechanic nothing but, it is done. Motorsport has often operated somewhat on the fringes of society, swayed more by the promise of a hefty paycheck than the political leanings of that particular country. In modern years, massive investment from Saudi Arabia has convinced countless forms of motorsport to strengthen their ties with a country that has been accused of rampant civil rights abuses. Even still, we might think that today it would be impossible for something like Fangio's kidnapping to happen. We don't have to peer far back into the past to understand where the danger of volatile countries could manifest itself today. During the 2022 Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, Houthi rebels attacked a Saudi Aramco depot in Jeddah, where the F1 circus had convened to race. Saudi Aramco is a massive sponsor of the sport, and the bombing of its depot was so close to the track that it sent an unmistakable message. In that instance, thankfully, no one was injured in the attack, and the race continued after four hours of deliberation by team bosses, F1 leaders, and the drivers. But it did serve as a critical reminder that a Grand Prix event can still be a powerful tool for political demonstration. After his retirement, Juan Manuel Fangio made a career selling Mercedes-Benz cars and turning demonstration laps behind the wheels of his most iconic machines, he died on the 17th of July, 1995, at the age of 84, having spent his entire life as the most dominant F1 driver in the history of the sport, and perhaps the only one capable of transforming the scope of an entire country's revolution. end the show, I'm introducing a segment called La Source, named, of course, after the turn at Spa-Francorchamps, but in this case, it's serving as my bibliography. 
You'll be able to check out a list of sources in the description of the podcast, but because it's important to me to source regularly and accurately, I'll be naming a few works at the end of each episode. This week, my primary source was Fangio, The Life Behind the Legend, a comprehensive biography published by Gerald Donaldson, though the Fangio entry in Crispy and Besley's recent Driven to Crime, True Stories of Wrongdoing in Motorsport, served as a great access point for additional details. I also referenced Joe Dunn's Motorsport Magazine piece titled When Fangio Was Kidnapped in Cuba and pulled some quotes from the International Grand Prix Book of Motor Racing by Michael Fruin. Thank you for tuning in to the very first episode of Deadly Passion's Terrible Joys. Next time out, we'll be talking about a race-fixing scandal that rocked the pre-war Tripoli Grand Prix.